Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest. Colonel Glenn Shaland just left as the air attache in South Korea. And, uh, you know, Glenn and I have known each other a while, and I didn't realize that he had gone to be the air attache until I was looking, I was looking him up, and then I was like, he's in South Korea. And so, as many of you, the listeners, know, it's an interesting time in Korea right now. And so with, and particularly with the DPRK and the moves they're making, their ballistic missile program, their, their nuclear program. So who better to talk about that than the very guy who just had the job as air attache. Glenn, welcome to NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. Good to be here. So tell us before, I don't know if a lot of folks sort of understand the attache system and the role that officers will play as, you know, the defense attache, the air attache, this sort of this whole office that represents the Department of Defense and interacts with militaries and governments. Can you explain that for our listeners? You know, like, how does it work? And then how do you become an attache? Right. Yeah. So the attaches are, you know, for each service, they're the representatives to each nation that they're assigned to uh, for their, uh, you know, expertise. So as the air attache, I was the Air Force representative uh, and to Korea, interacted mostly with the Korean Air Force. And then I was the advisor to directly to the ambassador. Uh, I worked under the defense attache, who was also the army attache. Uh, and generally speaking, um, in a defense attache office, you'll have a defense attache who might or may or may not be the senior uh, officer in the country, senior military officer in the country. Um, and he may or may not be, or she may not may not be the, um, the security cooperation office as well. In Korea, there's a separate security cooperation office that does, you know, um, basically foreign military sales, um, and training and about, you know, evaluations, uh, exercises, that sort of thing is in the SCO. And that is, um, just mag K for Korea in the DAO. We mostly deal with, uh, you know, just service to service relationships, um, whether that's through the Academy or through, um, direct interactions through like the A3 or A5 or between the chiefs. So we're responsible for, um, any visitors that come through um, from, from, you know, colonels all the way up to the, the secretary of defense uh, and monitoring them, they're getting the, getting them uh, meetings with whoever they want to meet with, whether it's the chief of staff, of the air force or, or the, the minister of defense. Um, and so you do those visits. You also, um, you know, do some uh, reporting on what, what's going on so that the people back in the States understand what has happened in those meetings uh, and then you also are a representative during any events that happen. 
in the in the country. So, for instance, if somebody has a national day, you got to get dressed up and go and eat and drink for your country. It's just one of the <laughs> uh, it's a hardship of the of the the duty. But uh, no, seriously, it, it it's a lot it's a lot of fun um, becoming an attaché. Uh, most, well, all the services have a foreign area officer program. So the FAO, uh, it's a 16 foxtrot in the air force, but, um, the army's had, had, I think the longest running FAO program. They, they do it really well. Uh, and the air force has only had the program for maybe five or six years, still trying to build it up. It used to be called RASPAS, the regional air affairs specialist or the political affairs specialist. Um, and it's kind of difficult for the Air Force because we're technical experts, so you need a technical expertise to start with, um, which usually means that you grow up in some career field through about major, and then you jump to be a foreign area officer. You apply uh, and then get into the program. Um, since the FAO program has started in the Air Force, we've, we've kind of played around with uh, potentially starting in the FAO uh, career field and then just growing up your entire career. But it's difficult just the way the, the human resources work in the Air Force and the personnel system. You know, you have to be, in order to become a, a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, you got to do a command and you got to be in charge of people and you got to do certain things um, to, to get to that level. So um, you, you kind of have to bounce back and forth. So you have uh, one of the key things to do is to learn a language, right? So if, uh, if you're looking to be a foreign area officer, uh, highly encourage you to learn a language in the area that you want to be in. Um, learning a lot about the history and the culture of the place that you're going, uh, and then you know being immersed in that, it, whether it's by, with as an assignment in that area, as you know in your area of expertise to start with, and then to become a foreign area officer there, um, or to just you know know or maybe have parents um, or something like that. But uh, all that said, I didn't have any of that. Uh, I had never been assigned to Korea. Uh, I didn't know the language. Uh, I, I was actually about ready to retire. Uh, and I got a call out of the blue saying, hey, would you like to still be, a, when you become a colonel, you can volunteer worldwide for deployments as a foreign area officer, as an attache. Uh, and I had done that and didn't get picked up. And then I did uh, mid-cycle. And then they said, hey, sure, I'll go. Why not? It was just in the middle of the fire and fury days. Um, if you remember, like, you know, 2018, 2017, um, and I called my wife at home and she's a former missileer. And I said, Hey, do you still want to go to Korea? And she said, yeah, man, if there's a, a nuclear war, I want to be at ground zero. I don't want to be, on the <laughs> uh, I want to be front and center. So, um, she was all in and that's really what it takes. Your family has to be all in on it. Uh, cause they're a big part of it as well. I've got two kids. Um, I had a, a, a daughter going into high school and a son that was um, going into junior high. And now uh, we stayed there four years in order to get her graduated through uh, high school. And now uh, my son is going in high school. And, you know, they're as much a part of the experiences as I was. My wife was uh, arm in arm as we were going to events and meeting high level officials. So uh, it's a family event. Um, and, you know, you're, you're there for the reason you're there is to represent your country. So you want to make sure that everybody is all in. Yeah, that's a, and did you end up, did they send you to language school? Did you get a chance to? I did. So, um, it, mine was shortened. It, sh it should be, it really should be a year and a half. Um, they can only really allow about a year and I only got about four months. So uh -oh. <laughs> I learned to say my name, introduce my, myself and maybe order some Kimbap.
Yeah. Yeah. That's uh and your your spouse and kids, did they get the language training as well or yeah, my uh Utula did as well. Um so she went to uh four months uh you know, it was eight hours a day, five days a week. So, you know, maybe if I'd been smarter I would have learned more, but Korean's a pretty tough language. Um, yeah. So she and learned so... enough to get but most yeah. most people speak English anyway, luckily. Um, so it wasn't a huge hindrance. Could I have done my job better if I'd known, if I'd been fluent? Absolutely. There's no doubt. Um, could I have done my job better if I'd had previous, uh, uh, connections and relationships with Koreans? Absolutely. Cause that's what it's all about. It's about ma- making and maintaining relationships, uh, with allies. And so the school, they send you to a school, I, you know, for understanding, uh, how to, you know, cultural relations and how to eat properly and all those kinds of things. How, how long is the school that they send folks to? Yeah. JMS is six months. Six so months. They, yeah. And it's point school. So all the um, services send folks there. So when you got there, uh, how did you sort of take on the role and what was day-to-day life like when you're the attache? Yeah. So, I dove right in. It was pre-COVID and we went to events probably four or five times a, a week, uh, which means that you, you know, you're going to, to work to kind of interact with the people in the embassy. You work very closely with the political section, the economic section, uh, pl- um, uh, public affairs, that's uh, protocol, all of those sections within the embassy, and then directly with front office with the ambassador and the deputy chief of mission. Um, and so that's the, your, kind of your day-to-day interactions, uh, doing office work. And then at night, after, you, you get dressed up and you're going out to events. So, And you're not getting paid overtime, right? So uh, you, you're working sometimes 16 hours a day uh, or more. Um, and, you know, I say work, you're going to a party. But, to, you know, you're going to a party with a purpose. So um, you're trying to... Uh, whether it's to find out more about what's going on in the world or to try to, to talk to a specific person um, and try to make a relationship there. That's kind of what it's, what it's all about. Yeah. Interesting. And did uh, in, in the end for your family is, is it still, you know, as the United States has sort of pulled back a lot of its overseas facilities and bases, is it still that same sort of, are you sort of out on the town or do you still have that support structure that used to be there? Uh, yeah. So for the most part, attaches are alone and unafraid. They have, you know, very support structure um, in the countries that they're in. In Korea, it's a little bit different because you've got a four-star command, right? And multiple three-star commands. Uh, so, the DAT is not the senior uh, defense official, the SDO uh, in Korea. Um, and there's a lot of support structure that exists within USFK, um, CNFK, um, and, you know, the, uh, the Marine contingent there, uh, and the 7th Air Force and all of that. So um, all that said, you know, up in, we're stationed up in Seoul where Yongsan is and was uh, but there were, used to be 30,000 GIs up there in Yongsan. And, that you know, at the time that we arrived in 2019, they had just moved 
down to Pyeongtaek and Camp Humphreys. So there was this huge exodus of people uh, and support structure from Yongsan down to Pyeongtaek. Uh, and the base was slowly closing. So over the course of four years, you know, what was a huge thriving base in the middle of Seoul and that metropolis, um, by the time I left, had been reduced down to basically two streets, um, the Dragon Hill Lodge and Embassy Housing, which still exists there. So, um, yeah, so and and even that, you know, is more than many attaches get when they just have to live on the off the economy because at least we had a commissary and a community of you know old army cinder block duplexes in live but it was kind of like a little bit of america uh and so um yeah it it, it was like a it, it was kind of like being in a prison especially during covid when we couldn't actually go off the base so you know for two years almost the koreans had uh pretty extensive COVID restrictions. They always said that they didn't shut down, but you couldn't go to a bar or a restaurant or a movie theater or a gym or a spa or anywhere. Everything was closed for over a year. And then, you know, it slowly started opening back up. They just got rid of mask mandates in hospitals this March. So, I mean, uh, when your job is to go out and have dinner with people and you can't go out to dinner, it makes it difficult to do, do your job. So as we shift the conversation and talk about your observations, if you were to describe for our listeners, many of whom may have some limited experience or understanding of Korea, the Korean people, how would you describe the Korean people and their view of the United States? Yeah, so the Korean people as a whole are at the top of supporters in the U.S. If you look at the polls uh, I think the only country that supports the U.S. more uh, is Kosovo. Uh, and so the Kosovars and the Koreans are at, you know, near 85% support uh, for the U.S. right now. Um, but that's variable. And it depends on, you know, what uh, administration is in power, both in the U.S. and Korea. Uh, and, you know, what, what events are going on, whether, whether it's with DPRK or Japan or China or, uh, you know, any, or Russia even. So, um, but generally speaking, uh, the Koreans are very supportive, uh, of Americans and the American presence there. Um, just like in, you know, the, the American presence in Japan, uh, there, when you're right around a base, they, the, the people tend to not support as much because they see the immediate impact. Um, but strategically speaking, um, the Koreans have been happy that we've been there since 1950. Yeah. Now it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break, but when we get back, I, w I want you to tell me about your sort of observations in regards to what you think the North Koreans are doing and how do the South Koreans understand that? Hmm. So you, okay. you're listening. You're listening to Nuclecast. We're talking to Colonel Glinchland, the former air attaché in South Korea, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrence Center. 
whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Colonel Glenn Chelan. So Glenn, I had before the break, I asked you how do you, what's your take on the North Koreans and their nuclear program? And then how, how did the South Koreans view that program? Yeah. So that's a long history, right? Uh, there's a <laughs> lot. I can't, I'm not sure I could cover it in 15 minutes even. Um, but like I was saying about the relationship with the United States, the relationship with North Korea also depends on the administration. Uh, and obviously I'm talking about the South Korean administration because the administration in North Korea doesn't change, right? It's the Kim family. It's always been the Kim family since the Korean War uh, or since World War II, actually. Um, and, and nothing, honestly, is really going to change unless the administration changes up in the North. Um, so uh, regardless of the outreach or the differences in approaches that the South Koreans take or the Americans take or the, uh, the, you know, the six party talks or whatever, we tried a lot. We have tried a lot of things over the last 50 years. And as a lowly colonel, I'm not going to second guess what, you know, generations of people that are much smarter than me have done to try to reconcile with the North. Um, but what the what the North has done in in during that time is built up their nuclear uh, strength, right? They ha they've somehow uh, gotten a nuclear program, whether it was through the help of the Russians or the Chinese or or by you know their own uh, know how, uh, because you know despite what people think, the, the North Koreans are not stupid, uh, and they do have a strong education system that's focused on certain things like the nuclear program or cyber. Uh, attacks or, um, you know, supporting themselves, they're very uh, focused on the Juche ideology of being self-supporting. So, you know, regardless of how, how much you, and we've seen 70 years worth of uh, economic sanctions hasn't really done anything to stop that. Uh, it may have slowed it down a little bit, um, but they were able to develop a nuclear program, right? And develop rocketry to, to um, deliver those uh, weapon systems. So the relationship with the South and what the South has tried to do is tried, and, you know, this is a big part of our, our relationship with the U.S., is made sure that um, they have a, a strong enough force to deter the North Koreans from ever using those weapons. Uh, and that's really, as we know, what nuclear weapons are, are for, is for deterrence. Um, so, you know, the South Koreans realize that, and they realize that uh, they need the United States to provide that nuclear umbrella, the extended deterrence. Uh, and we've, uh, you know, expressed that very clearly for decades. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, the South Koreans have wanted and have pursued a nuclear program for themselves in the past. Uh, and we've dissuaded them from that uh, back in the 70s. Uh, and I feel that we've done a fairly decent job of doing that again here in recent days um, with some of the changes that we've made with the nuclear consultative group, with the Washington Declaration, um, and with some of the, uh, you know, actions that we've taken since the UNID administration has come into power um, to show that we're still committed 
to that extended deterrence. And I'm talking about sending, um, you know, there was recently a nuclear submarine that uh, was sent there in the first in a long, long time, maybe the first ever, uh, that's been, you know, announced in advance. Um, we've also uh, started flying B-52s over the peninsula, which is the first time in, in five years. Uh, first time since I was the 608th AOC commander back in 2016 to 2018, that was the last time we'd flown B-52s. Nothing when I was there to my day. And then as soon as I leave, the day I left, they flew a B-52 over the, the peninsula. So, you know, uh, it, all, all that's to say is um, some administrations in the South try to uh, pursue reunification more heavily uh, through negotiations. Um, some of them tried to do it through peace through strength, like the UN administration is doing right now, uh, and through deterrence. Uh, so there's many different approaches, um, but really not, not a lot is going to change until uh, North Korea decides that they're going to give up nuclear weapons and try to somehow reunify. Yeah, when, whenever the last time I was there a few years back, I remember, you know, I, I sort of had the a sense that the Chinese were sort of the key partner for the North Koreans. But one of the things that the South Koreans, a point that they made was like, hey, it's not really that China is a puppet master pulling the North Korean strings. In some respects, you know, there, there's that old adage that the borrower is slave to the lender. But in the case of the the North Koreans and the Chinese, it's it's sort of the reverse where the, the North Koreans are now the puppet masters of the Chinese because the North Koreans have become so, you know, bellicose and so, you know, they've built an arsenal that, that could really cause problems throughout the regime. And so now, you know, and this was a point that the South Koreans were making was that we, we sort of think that it's it's you know not china pulling strings it's north korea doing things to shape the chinese behavior when when you know if if china were to sort of shut down the border and shut down aid and assistance it would be hard for north korea to feed itself to you know to survive how do you see that relationship between china and north korea yeah, well, you talk about shutting down the border. That's exactly what they did during COVID. So for three years, the border was completely shut down uh, between China and North Korea, uh, and they survived, right? So they're capable of doing that. Um, they've shown through the 90s that they're capable of surviving off grass and bark, right? For uh, it's It seems incredible and possible, but they're able to do that. So I, I wouldn't even say that they're dependent on the Chinese for support. Uh, and uh, certainly not pulling puppet strings of Xi Jinping. I mean, if he ever heard you say that, it, uh, <laughs> I say about that. Uh, no, but but uh, but KGU Kim Jong Un and his you know father before him and his grandfather are extremely good at using what little leverage they have to get what they need to survive uh, and to uh, balance on a fine line of getting support, uh, whether it's from China or from the U S or from South Korea, because we've also given them support when they needed it. You know, we're, we're not against giving them humanitarian aid. Even, even during, um, COVID we were offering 
human uh, vaccines and humanitarian food and and also in medicines and all these sorts of things, whether or not the North Koreans accept it, which they didn't, uh, is up to them. But you know, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. It's what's what's what, whatever they feel that they can get away with. But I, I honestly think that the Chinese are more afraid that um, that the North Koreans might use nuclear weapons against them. Like the the the, those short-range missiles are not just pointed at Seoul; they're also pointed towards Beijing, right? Uh, and not in a threatening manner, but just in a "Hey, you can't push me around" manner, right? So, I mean, the, the purpose of, of nuclear weapons is political, right? So, if you've got that big stick, you have a little bit more say in in what people can and can't do against you. So, I think that's that's more in the in the realm of of what. Uh, the, the the relationship between South Korea or North Korea and, and China is it's not adversarial. It's not necessarily supporting. Um, it, they're just kind of uh, not even allies. Although they do have uh, you know a, a mutual uh, defense treaty with within the two. So, um, but it's a, a very tenuous relationship. I would say. Would you say that for for the Chinese the the primary desire is to prevent the collapse of North Korea because that could potentially mean the unification of Korea under a sort of Western liberal democracy that could potentially see the Americans on their border and that's what they fear? Or is there another, you know, reason that they're sort of bound together? Uh, I, I think they, they, the, the, the PRC specifically, um, they don't want North Korea to go away because it, it's a, it takes our focus off of them. So it's this big thorn on our side. That's always been there that we have to put resources towards, uh, and, that could be used potentially as a second front, which has been used as a second front, right? I mean, sure. let's be honest, PRC was the main uh, uh, belligerent in the Korean War, right? They're the only reason why the peninsula is still divided right now. If it hadn't yeah. been for their intervention, it would have been reunified, right? So uh, they're, they are, um, they will would not want to see a reunification under South Korean government. For sure, they wouldn't want to see to see a larger presence uh, by the West. Um, they don't want. They don't even want us to be allies with the South Koreans. They're trying at every opportunity to to put a wedge between us and South Korea, between South Korea and Japan. They constantly, you know, well, they they fly between South Korea and Japan with the Russians on an annual basis to fly around Dokto or the Fukushima, or, you know, uh, not Takashima, Leoncourt rocks, right? Uh, using all the names for the that little uh, piece of land in between that both Japan and Korea claim, China knows about that, and they constantly poke at it to just to, to mess with them and to see what the Chinese or what the Japanese and the Koreans will do and what will do about it, which up to until now is very little. So the, the Chinese are good at, at trying to drive wedges between people uh, and trying to drive, uh, you know, us away from our allies. And they'll continue to do that as much as they can. So if I were to, and I've, you know, it's become my custom at the end of every show to pull out my 
genie, Bob, who grants three wishes. And if I pull out my lamp and rub that lamp and Bob gives you three wishes, what would your three wishes be for the Korean Peninsula? And let's say that they're wishes that you think are, are they wouldn't even have to be magic. They would have to be plausible. What would the <laughs> plausible wishes be? Yeah. Um, so how, how about uh, the Kim family abdicates to a government that is amenable to a federated reunification uh, such that they don't give up North Korean uh, sovereignty and you have a North Korea and a South Korea, but it, it is a, it's a kind of a not belligerent. Right. Um, I think that would be the best case if somehow we were able to get the Kim family and put them up in a chalet in, in Switzerland somewhere and then, uh, give the government to somebody that is uh, willing to at least work with the South Koreans on improving their economy. And, and to be fair, every administration in the South has offered that, whether it's Moon or Yoon on either side of this, the political spectrum. Uh, and we've also encouraged that even now we say that we're willing to negotiate without any uh, preconditions and talk. Um, but honestly, the, the North Koreans haven't picked up the phone uh, in the last two or three years to even talk about anything since about 2019, in fact. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, that, that's obviously the number one wish is that the, the, the Kim family would just kind of gracefully go away. Um, do I really get three wishes? You get three. Uh, yeah. Only for three. The, <laughs> yeah. For, for the, and only for the Korean peninsula. Right. Yeah, so the yep. one would obviously be that the Koreans uh, and the Japanese would get along. We really, really need them to to cooperate uh, on a very basic level uh, and and on every level. Uh, and and again, this is this is an outsider's point of view. They obviously have historical differences that are almost impossible to reconcile. Uh, and I'm very aware of the the those cultural differences. Uh, but you gave me a wish, right? So if if the Koreans and the Japanese could just let bygones be bygones and look towards the future. Uh, of a, a cooperative society, uh, then that would be fantastic. And I think that would be better for, for everyone, maybe not the PRC, but for everyone who has a positive out, out, outlook on, on the, that area. Uh, and then uh, third wish, I think um, it would be that the, the Koreans... Uh, w- would maintain their relationship with the United States, build their relationships with uh, Europe and Africa as they're, and uh, Southeast Asia as they're trying to do. I, I you know, I in, have encouraged them to do that the, the four years that I was there and I, and I wish them well in their, uh, their goal to be what Yoon calls a global pivotal state They'd certainly have the, the economic uh, punch to do that, although I think they're punching above their weight sometimes. Um, but they, they also need to, to come into their own and, and really feel that they uh, deserve that. They have a little bit of an inferiority complex. A little, you know, they, they call themselves the shrimp between two whales, between China and Japan. But if they can just kind of get over that and just 
you know, meet the world to as themselves, um, I think they'll do great for the world. And, you know, they really are doing that culturally, you know, with the, the cave dramas and the K-pop and all, and all of the case social stuff, um, they are doing that, that outreach throughout the world. Uh, and they, they are also exporting, uh, you know, um, they're the, I think the sixth largest, uh, military exporter in the world as well, uh, and hope to be the fourth in a few years. So, um, they're, they're really, uh, coming into their own after 70 years of, of, uh, amazing buildup. Glenn Shalan, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast to talk about South Korea. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Adam. I, I, I uh, enjoyed it. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode. Hopefully you found this discussion of South Korea, one that was interesting and informative. And we also hope that you'll join us on the next episode of Nuclecast. Well, great, great talk with Glenn Shaland. Glenn is, uh, he's a friend, known him a while, and it's, you know, the air attache in a country like South Korea, it's uh, it's a, you know, it's a place where there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts, and just to be able to sort of understand where the South Koreans are coming from, how they see issues, because we, we Americans sort of mirror image you know, almost everybody. And so to really get to be able to understand what other people are thinking, why they think it, you know, what motivates them and to pierce those cultural divides or those, those sort of surface level relationships, which is what an era attache gets to do, you know, that's sort of really invaluable. And so it was great to be able to talk to Gwen about his, you know, his four years as the era attache. Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation as well. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.